Okay, welcome everybody. Today we're covering the other works of George R. R. Martin. My name is Amin. I'm from a Podcast of Ice and Fire, and I'm joined by my friend Duncan. Hi there. Uh, my name's Duncan. I also go by Valkyrist on the internet, and I'm one of the hosts of the Vassals of King's Grave podcast, which is a listener-made spin-off of a Podcast of Ice and Fire. And today we're talking about uh, the other works of George R. R. Martin. Uh, this is actually, I got into this area specifically when I was waiting for Feast for Crows to come out. Um, but I think that's relevant now as well. Whenever you're waiting for George to release his works, you have to realize that George is actually being a writer for decades now. Like this is not a song of ice and fire is not his first work. It's, uh, he's done a lot of other work and that's what we're going to discuss today. And, and I chose for the slide here, the a song for Laia, because I remember when I first went to the library to look for other works from George, I, I saw one of these, uh, I saw the, the cover with the lips and I'm like, is this really George's book? Like, what is this thing? And th that kind of, maybe slowed me getting into his works for a few months before I decided to actually oh. read it. <laughs> oh, the, the, the covers are so bizarre of some yeah. of these short stories. <laughs> They're really out there. Um, and yeah, it, it is funny, like, because um, obviously most of us here would have gotten into George's work through A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's that's basically um, towards the end of his career. He was mm. actually a writer throughout the 70s and 80s, mostly working in science fiction, but also horror, and then more and more fantasy until his sort of magnum opus with A Song of Ice and Fire. So there is there is heaps of content out there that George has written. So if you're starved for the next uh, A Song of Ice and Fire book, there's heaps of stuff to get through. So go back to his short stories and novels and that's what we're kind of going to discuss today is, is a bit of that you can see that george's development over time in the various works here leading up to ice and fire various some people have various views of like whether there's actually a direct connection but certainly there's a literary development of a writer here and we'll talk about that today so i will move forward here to the next slide i can see just to talk about a few quotes from George and the way he views uh, different literary genres. He, George doesn't really view science fiction, fantasy, horror, and other genres that separately. As you can see from some of the quotes here, he really just sees them all as just like ice cream. Maybe they're different flavors of ice cream, chocolate or strawberry, but they're still the same thing. And whether you're talking about, you know, uh, giants, elves, dwarves, or human characters, or you know, aliens, it's just all about uh, the struggles of the, the human heart and the conflict with itself. That's George's philosophy. That's the way he uh, views these uh, genres. Yeah, I, I attended uh, the Virtual World Con last year that was meant to be in New Zealand, but ended up just being on Zoom. Mm. And uh, he, he ran one of the panels and I asked him that question, you know, is there a difference between science fiction and fantasy? And he basically said the same thing. Although I think he used the analogy of like furniture, like mm. um, uh, some, uh, you know, sci-fi has this kind of furniture, spaceships and whatnot, and, and uh, fantasy has, you know, castles and throne rooms and things, but they're essentially doing very similar things. It's, it's all sort of speculative, uh, you know, magic is science fiction by another name, I guess. I think that that's probably one of the reasons why, I mean, other, other than the fact that he's just a great writer generally, that he is able to do well in all these different genres because of that viewpoint. Like, if you had a different mm. viewpoint, you probably wouldn't be interested in and writing certain genres, even let alone doing well in them. And he, he was able to move for, to three different genres. So we have an outline here, just kind of what we're going to talk about in general. We'll talk with kind of the fantasy and closest link. First, Ice and Fire, like the closest in, in theme, Ice Dragon, and then kind of move on to w the way George started, which was mostly in science fiction. So some different works under science fiction and other works really there. But George is actually quite well-known in the horror like sphere and he's won award he has award-winning works there so we'll start in horror and talk about some other 
works. And uh, this panel we usually do live at Ice and Fire. We have it now online. So question and answers we'll go over at the end. You can still send questions for us if you have any via Twitter or Facebook, and, and we'll get back to you after the panel. So let's start with the Ice Dragon, um, which actually has been adapted a few different times. I mean, it was written first before, like decades ago, when George was living, um, I don't remember, I think it was in Iowa, Dubuque or somewhere around there, and, and it was a very uh, harsh uh, winters there, right? So I think it inspired his writing. Yes, he has several short stories which are very cold, and they all seem to originate <laughs> when he was living in a cold climate. It's this the, the Ice Dragon and Bitter Blooms is another very frosty mm. novel that he wrote in cold climates. And this this work is kind of interesting because uh, he he said that uh, when he when he wrote it um, initially he just was a general short story, but then. It, Somebody kind of told him, or if he figured it out, this actually could be like a children's novel. So that's why it was redone with the Yvonne Gilbert edition. It was redone as a children's novel, but it's a children's novel with like mutilation and war and like implied rape and all these things that like, I mean, it's not really a children's novel, but look, they cut it down a bit. They actually changed the text a little bit in, in that version to try to make it palatable for kids. Yeah, there's a couple <laughs> of paragraphs they excised from the... Um children's version including this sort of march of defeated soldiers describing their various war wounds mm. um and yeah there is a, a an incident in a house that he had to cut also or sort of made a bit more ambiguous which was quite disturbing it's funny that he calls it a children's story though because even setting aside those sort of gruesome bits the tone of the the story i found so sort of melancholic and depressing mm. um I mean, it is. I mean, it's set from a child's point of view, and it sort of has a happy ending at the end. But it's quite an emotional book. But I guess, I guess, some of the best children's stories are emotional. I think uh, it it would be interesting because I don't know anyone who has actually had their child read this to see what a child's perspective would be. I mean, like it's just been Ice and Fire fans that have read this. Um, and I, I do in, in the newer version, like the new. I don't know if it was. I think the newest version does with Louis Royo. The jacket even says. This is in the universe of Ice and Fire. It was just just an editor's ploy. It has nothing to do with that. Like it has themes from it. It's inspired. Like it's it's some of the things that worked in this work, like his other works, appear later. But it really is not the same thing. You could make some grand theory that it is, but it's not. It's just a ploy to sell it. But who cares? Who cares if it's in? Yeah, that's no, not the I, point. I it's the same writer. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's literally in the same universe, but you can yeah. see some of the same. Uh, DNA, some of the same ideas and themes. Like I, I saw a lot of Arya in the in the main in the mm. little girl that is the protagonist of the story, um, and you know just the fantasy setting it has a few a few archetypal characters. Like there's kind of a Benjen character in it. There's a there, there's a reference to the King's Road, things like that. So he's he's working with a few of these ideas that would eventually be fleshed out in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, it's funny that thinking about the book as a short story it just occurred to me. It's it's kind of similar to that um, to that children's story uh, where the wild things are because that's mm. also a book about a kid who just can't deal with his emotions and gets kind of rejected by his parents and then goes off into this sort of fantasy world of his own creation. So I think yeah, there is a bit of a precedent with those kinds of children's stories. I think the the approach that I I take generally is I try to like when i read these george's previous works i do learn more about ice and fire but it's not because they're like connected to the same world or anything it's just that the writing styles the themes the views of life and war are the roots are there and they get developed later so that's how it, it, it people think that it has to be also be connected just 
literally like it's like somehow the same universe. That's 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 not the way you get insight. At least not the way I get insight reading these people's works. And also thematically, I think this story very much connects to Song of Ice and Fire in terms of like this tension between romance and like realism or sort mm. of de-romanticizing things because you have this really wondrous uh being or beast in the ice dragon that the little girl discovers but it also set against this backdrop of this really horrible war that initially all the villagers are quite excited by it but as the war gets closer and closer becomes quite a frightening thing and becomes more in the realm of sort of the adult world so i think Mm. he definitely plays into that in a song of ice and fire with a lot of the younger characters you know the young sort of stark children very excited about the prospect of adventure and battle and and the knights and then slowly coming into contact with the you know the harsh reality of the world you, you know when the the lewis royal version came out i was actually really excited because i always always for a long time thought lewis royal would be a nice fit for george to illustrate some of his works and he did a really good job with the dragons part but it, it was a bit of disappointing that it was, it was this one because the main character is a young child and he doesn't really draw young children He's known for doing, you know, mystical beasts and beautiful women. So he could do half the equation here, <laughs> but right, but right. not the other half. Any other George work, I think, would have been better. But I still enjoyed it. It was still a, a good adaptation. So I guess we'll move on to some of his other George's uh, other works. And 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 as as, I, as we talked about earlier, just the cover art for his works is just part of the enjoyment for for going through some of these early works. There's just there's so many different types of artwork. Like the one in the top left is is done by a pretty good artist and i actually have a copy of that analog uh short story i uh, got assigned by george second kind of loneliness and, and th- that's actually how george started a lot of his works he started with short uh, fiction short stories right uh he did yeah that was most of what he did in the 70s and the 80s he wrote three novels hmm. three novels by himself before a song of ice and fire and then he sort of did some co-novels with some other authors uh but most of what he wrote were short stories. And I think his, his short stories are sort of my favorite of his works. I would highly recommend pretty much all of his short stories, um, even over the novels. Like the novels are good too, but the short stories I think are where he's experimenting the most mm-hmm. and doing the most kind of radical, interesting, powerful work. I think that's um, George's uh, view on for new writers. He often does recommend they start with short stories because it's just – easier to start with something with that set time, like set page limit and set, set arc before you go to your massive novella or novel. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I would. Speaking of covers, I would highly recommend people go to George's website and check mm. out all the different covers from different countries of A Song of Ice and Fire, you know, publications of A Song of Ice and Fire and his novels and his, his short collections because um, there's some really, really cool stuff out there. Um, and yeah, like, a, you know, book covers can be so powerful in evoking a mood <laughs> or just kind of wrapping you up in an idea like it, covers are so important even though someone else does them but they're so important it's kind of like the first um impression you get of a book and the kind of window into into a, an author's work so they are really important I'll, I'll, i guess I'll, I'll give a very quick synopsis of some of the works here because i don't want to get in details but just what they're about second kind of loneliest just ca- t- kind of talks about different types of loneliness, the type, the type that's maybe when you're out in nature or something versus the type where you're actually surrounded by a crowd of people, but you feel lonely. George is kind of dealing with that feeling. Uh, Song for Lie deals with some interested, again, philosophical and religious views in a science fiction setting. The the top right is, is one of our favorite. Uh, we actually have been doing ongoing reviews in Vassal's Kingsgrave and Vassal's Kingsgrave of these works. 
of George, and that uh, deals with the pear-shaped man. I think that's a Japanese cover in the top right, and it's kind of like this horror story with uh, was it Cheetos or cheese puffs or whatever, like whatever. Che- the t- cheese doodles. Cheese doodles. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah, makes he, cheese doodles he, scary. Only, only George could make <laughs> cheese doodles the most terrifying thing ever, and I think that was our longest episode to date. We yes. we reviewed that that story for about two hours, and about a quarter <laughs> of that discussion was us going to the cheese doodle website and just being blown away by by the website. It's one of the strangest websites we've ever seen. So it's a window mm-hmm. into madness. That book. So then it's a great story. Like uh, I, I, each of these work, I haven't regretted reading any of George's previous stories. They, they vary in quality, but I've enjoyed them all to, to some degree. So certainly enjoying that. I guess we'll move on a bit to maybe a more targeted discussion, although we won't go into too much detail. Uh, there's tough voyaging because this is some of George's science fiction uh, works. He, he Most of his science fiction is in one uh, uh, kind of like universe, right? Like is it the Thousand Worlds is the kind of informal name for it, right? Yeah, that's what he calls it. So about half of his short stories, um, his first novel, his first novel, Dying of the Light, and then his kind of fix-up novel, um, Tough Voyaging, which started as short stories, but he eventually combined them into a collection. They all take place in the same universe, which is funny because we think of A Song of Ice and Fire as his big series that he wrote. Mm-hmm. But he did technically write a series uh, prior to that in the 70s and the 80s, which he he calls the Thousand Worlds uh, series. Um, uh, they're not quite as coherent as a series as a song of ice and fire Mm -hmm. like the stories often don't share the same characters the exception being tough voyaging which follows tough um throughout the galaxy on various adventures yeah tough voyaging is that thing exactly the same character the same time period because a lot of the other stories span huge different time periods right but you have tough in it within his uh, life time period going through various different uh, scenarios on different planets and i think the earliest book might have been in the late 70s like george dealing with things like genetic engineering and stuff really early back then like that not many other people mm. were thinking about uh in this work so we actually haven't covered this one this might be the next thing that we cover uh, on mm-hmm. the podcast reviews but it, it is I've, I've enjoyed all the tough voyaging stories and there's some people that are that have been waiting for the next tough voyaging uh, stories since the last one i think was late 80s so they've been waiting for that they're like when's the next tough story <laughs> yeah, I have to admit, I haven't read any of the tough voyaging stories, so I am mm. keen to do a podcast on them. But if anyone's interested and wants to join the podcast, the uh, tough voyaging podcast, or send questions or things they want us to talk about mm-hmm. with tough voyaging, definitely send us a tweet or send us a message. You talked about Dying of the Light. That was I think that was George's first novel, I believe, right? Dying of the Light. Yeah. It was, yeah. That was his first novel, um, and it's set in the Thousand Worlds universe. And the kind of the premise of the universe, or what pro- ties all the stories together, is that it takes place after this sort of catastrophic event called the Interregnum. So there was a big war between humanity and two alien species, and it basically fragmented all of the civilizations of the human civilizations of the galaxy. Everything fell apart. All the communications between the different planets were lost, and then slowly over hundreds of years. Connections started. Communication between the different human settlements started to be, um, you know, reconnected or mm-hmm. rekindled. And these stories are kind of set in the aftermath of that sort of collapse and revival of, of human civilization. Yeah, Dying of the Light. One of the main characters, or several of the main characters, are, are what I like to call space Dothraki. Like they, mm. <laughs> you can kind of see that bit of connection there, and just like yeah. uh, George's view of like what happens to different planet, like. George, uh, uh, you think about it like he, he really spans the full spectrum of what could be human civilization. 
like what mm. different conditions if you like if you think about the last few books short stories we, we reviewed he really gets there right he goes to like all the different forms of like well, at least he could view where humans go and so dying the light doesn't do that specifically because it deals with a couple of cultures it does a few of them but it, it, it also it is reflective of the point i think many writers draw upon their own experiences in their work some admit it george certainly does admit it and dying the light and some of these other earlier works really do draw upon his own personal experiences and uh relationships and romances and that kind of stuff yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a there's a strong theme of sort of loneliness in a lot of his stories and sort of this seeking for human connection. Mm-hmm. You see that in Dying of the Light, A Song for Liar, uh, the second kind of loneliness, this sort of strong desire to connect with other people, but this kind of inability to do so or this kind of this fear of never never truly being connected with another people. And also Dying of the Light has this really strong melancholic tone of having – it's being set on this planet that was once full of life and and music and mm. and culture and art, but has drifted too far away from a sun, from its star and is slowly sort of freezing over and becoming uninhabitable. So that's another I think strong theme in a lot of George's works, including A Song of Ice and Fire, that the characters live in the kind of shadow of this much greater um, civilization that is slowly you know, falling apart and decaying and, and they look back on it with nostalgia um, and, and find it difficult to adapt to the, to the new world. I find it interesting that I had this slide uh, with these other works here because it kind of jumps around. I think we, we still have more of George's science fiction works, but then we have Fever Dream, which is kind of like this historical uh, kind of semi-fantasy historical work in our world, like admittedly in our world. We review that yeah. and then it's his old steamboats uh, <laughs> obsession, right? <laughs> there. Fever dreams. Fever dreams really interesting because yeah, it isn't set in a science fiction universe. It's it's mostly a historical novel that he kind of introduces uh, these kind of horror elements to. Um, and in, it's funny because we described it, it – it's a vampire novel essentially, but we described it as primarily a book about steamboats because <laughs> much of the book is is devoted to describing uh, steamboat culture and the steam steamboat scene on the Mississippi River in the south during the sort of antebellum period. Um, but yeah, there's also uh, some horror elements and some adventure elements and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed Fever Dream. I'd, I'd recommend it. Then moving on to another – kind of big contrast is, is Windhaven. I don't know, have you had the chance to read that? Duncan? No, I haven't read this one. No. Yeah, and, and what's interesting about Windhaven is, uh, it's, I mean, it's one of George's few works where he, he worked directly with one other author, and you can kind of see that this work was made by two different people. You can see George's influence, and then you can see things that probably came from Lisa Tuttle. And uh, it's, it's a good story. Like, I, I enjoyed Windhaven. I think, if I recall correctly, it's kind of a couple of I don't know if they started as, as short stories and were put together. It certainly has several certain stories, kind of like Tough Voyaging, that deal with different issues that are related. And mm-hmm. uh, it was good. We'll have to cover that at some point. Um, but uh, and, and uh, I will mention Lisa Tuttle. I mean, George openly talks about his previous relationship with on his own website. About if you read it, if you read because he has a kind of a biography of his life there. And Lisa Tuttle was in a relationship with George. Didn't work out. They're friends now, but that whole experience ties into like even dying the light potentially i think lisa tuttle might have inspired a character she certainly inspired some characters in some of his earlier works that whole relationship so it's interesting to then see that they actually had this uh collaboration this work together all right so let's uh move on here to uh some more horror slash science fiction <laughs> horror in a science that's the other thing george is as he said it just he, he, he mixes it all together and he gets to whatever he wants to write basically he 
whatever t tools or furniture or background he wants. Uh, any comments on Night Flyers or Sand Kings? <laughs> um, I, I love them both. They're probably up mm. there as two of my favorite of his works. Um, Sand Kings was the novel, the, the the work that I think he was most famous for prior to A Song of Ice and Fire. Like that got him a lot of awards and a lot of recognition. He had, he had um, a whole, whole as, shelf as of awards before Ice, Ice and Fire. People, people don't know. Not only was he writing these, these are award-winning works, a lot of these works. Like yeah. He had Hugo's, Nebula's, everything. Like he, he <laughs> Sand Kings I found really disturbing and frightening um and it's also a novel it's also a story in which the protagonist is quite hideous and unlikable mm. um so you, you a lot of the time you just feel quite grossed out by inhabiting this this person's brain even before the uh the, the sort of monstrous elements are introduced but that's a really a really scary nasty little uh work with an awesome sort of ending um i think it was uh even adapted into uh, an outer limits episode in the 1980s i think that it was, was. The, it, might, it might have been one of, one of the, the first ones uh, i'm not sure yeah it was a first so, it was a two-parter even like they, they changed yeah. it a bit too much like one of the reasons i put these two is because these works actually are getting a lot of adaptations. They, they already had some, and then now because mm. of George's fame, they're getting even more. So Sand Kings, I believe, might be being adapted again. I don't know the full details, but it, it did have that one. Nightflyer certainly was adapted again. I haven't seen it, the newer version. There's the, the older, when it says now a major motion picture, that's the original one from like 20 years ago, plus uh, that I think it had like Uncle Phil's in it <laughs> from, from uh, Fresh Prince. I think. I've, yeah, I've seen yeah. I've seen the trailer. I recognize <laughs> Uncle Phil was there. Yeah. Uh, most of what I remember from the trailer it was just how much smoke machine was used. Like I feel <laughs> like the the 1980s was a golden age for smoke machines. Um, but the Nightflies is another really great one. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a mix. It's mostly sci-fi, but with some strong horror elements. I've heard it described as Psycho in space. Mm. Um, and also some sort of very similar to the movie Alien by Ridley Scott. There's some elements there. I think it was released almost the same year or maybe even a year before mm. um, Alien. And there's a very similar scene in both of them. Um, but that's a really good one. And that's a, that's quite a long one. That's a novella. So it's it's probably his longest short story that I'm aware of. But I would highly recommend both of those. George certainly does kind of uh, push the line. Even when he has short stories, it's like, well, is it a short story? Is it so long? Like he pushes it to the limit. Is it novella now whatever it is he, he always pushes it to the longer limit but um sand kings actually even had a a graphic novel i think it was i mean comic book they call it they called it back then they call it a graphic novel but like i have it from i think from the late 80s maybe early 90s it's, it's that certain 80s feel to it it's really cool i really love the artwork of it that's another aspect actually if you're if you're into the more like the collecting side of things like there's a lot of these earlier george works are still out there you can get your own actual copy from it or collect to get it signed like that aspect is also there you're looking to like collect things from george's writings and, and they're just yeah, gorgeous and good condition a lot of them yeah I, I managed to find a few i went to a uh, a market a couple of months ago and i was looking through some issues of analog and i found mm. a couple of george's original short stories so i made sure to grab those and they even within the short story they'll include some artwork which is always cool to see the original artwork that uh was created for the first publication well, even of the that story. Uh, i'll go back to that uh, the, the top left Second kind of loneliness. George had the option to buy the original like art painting for that way mm. back when, and I think it initially was like I don't know five hundred dollars or something. And for him at that time, it was too expensive, right? Like he was a young author, and then he said like the last time I heard it was being sold for like thirty thousand, forty thousand. Of course, now it might even be higher. Like he's like, I wish I had wow. bought it back then. Although he could afford it now <laughs> yeah. if he wanted to buy. He's I mean he's buying railways. <laughs> he could buy that yeah, painting yeah. if he wanted now. Maybe he has that painting now. 
Uh, okay, so Meat House Man is probably the most one of the most extreme works. And again, George himself, I think he admits he took from his own experiences. Of course, exaggerated here, but but like drew upon the pain of his personal experiences like he, he, in in writing this story. And this is picture is the graphic novel uh, adaptation by Rhea Golden, who's actually one of his assistants and and does really good artwork. And she's now doing this. I'm glad that she had the opportunity to do so because she did a good job with it. So, have you read Meat House Man? I have, yeah. This is an incredible work. Very disturbing. It's probably one of my favorite of his. Um, and it's funny to call it a horror story because there's certainly some horror, horrific imagery mm. in it. Like the premise is that he inhabits this kind of outer mining colony where um, they use co- like human corpses for like manual labor. So he gets corpses to, to mine um, areas, but they also use corpses for prostitution and he occasionally visits them um, which is a very disturbing idea, but the most disturbing parts are actually sort of his internal um, psychology or his internal conflict between wanting to find a connection, wanting to find a girlfriend, you know, uh, having feelings for people, but not having those feelings required, and then kind of seeking out these um, corpse brothels, as they're called, as a way of escaping or a way of sort of finding human connection. Um it's yeah it's it's very sad and very disturbing um i feel like it has a a weird resonance with today's kind of internet culture like there's a mm. lot of people on the internet who are very lonely very sort of resentful and spiteful and have just kind of used um you know virtual reality as a way of escaping and sort of recreating their life the way they want it so i don't know i feel like there's some um, there's some definitely some subcultures on the that have emerged on the internet that I feel like there's a lot of I don't know I recognize a lot of what they talk about and what they're going through in this character that appears in Meat House Man. So it's sort of a a very um, you know uh, so timeless. It's a, it's time, exactly, I'm saying timeless. It's not just set like it's something that is relevant to any period like this type yeah. of situation or or certain people like exactly. It, it's a very yeah, it's a very specific like lo- male loneliness mm-hmm. um, that they're sort of, yeah, he's sort of taught, I don't know, there's something about his personality that he struggles to show emotion, he struggles to connect with people, and that struggle sort of manifests itself in really unhealthy ways. So it's a, it's a really, really powerful book mm-hmm. or, or, or story, I felt. But very and disturbing, not for the faint of heart. Exactly. In fact, I wouldn't... I- that's true. Like, uh, perhaps like Meat House Man, for example, is a work that I could not recommend to to everyone. Like, it, it depends mm-hmm. on what kind of reader you are, what kind of thing you can handle. Certainly, this would be on the more extreme side. Uh, I wouldn't start with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it depends on what you can handle. That's, that's a good point. Um, there's some other some other works. The Hunter's Run. I have. I think that's more recent. I have not read that, and it's kind of a collaboration. But uh, the, the Armageddon Rag. I have read it, and, and what's interesting about the, that is it's one that actually ended George's career for a while, writing <laughs> career. Like it, it basically, um, he got, a, I think he got a big advance for it, but it didn't sell. So then he ended up having to work in Hollywood for a while and then eventually come back when he came back to Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, it's sort of, no, I haven't read this one. All I know that is, is of it is that it, it's set in the 60s and it has something to do with Lord of the Rings. Like he follows a rock band that calls themselves the Nazgul's or something like that. Yes, that's right. Yeah. It's not actually, really, um, it's from people from the sixties. I think it's a little bit later. It's people oh, kind of like okay. reflecting post sixties, but it is kind of traces right. that history. Yeah. 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 It is interesting. It sounded like it was one of the books he had a lot of freedom for like, you know, yeah. fever dreams good, but it's quite a sort of a, 
not generic, but it's sort of you feel like it's um it's a genre piece. Like you feel like there's a lot of things that he's um uh that have been done before and he just tries to do them in a new way, whereas Armageddon and Rag seems wholly original and wholly a passion project. Um but yeah, sadly, uh readers did not uh enjoy it. And yeah, he was writing a fourth novel, in fact, that he had intended to publish. And he wrote about a quarter of it, and it was called um, Black and White and Red All Over. And it was sort of set in late 19th century New York, and it was about Jack the Ripper possibly coming to New York and set from the perspective of these sort of newspaper reporters. Um, And it is available that the sort of quarter that he did write is available in a collection called Quartet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he couldn't get an advance on the on the work. He sent it to various publishers and none of them wanted to buy it because Armageddon Rag had failed so miserably. So he just eventually abandoned that work and then started writing for Hollywood until finally he had the uh, he had the idea of A Song of Ice and Fire. Although what is it, uh, when we've discussed this, is, is I guess some period before the Song of Ice and Fire, he was writing like the, the book that was going to be like his capstone for the Thousand Worlds, like Avalon, right? So he was kind of chipping away at that. Yeah, of course, he didn't release it anywhere or do anything. With yeah. It. He, he, that was when he was going to try to arc back from there, and then he went back went to Ice and Fire with his new... Yeah, and he describes, I think it's even in Quartet, he, he yeah. describes writing Avalon and how he envisioned it. He describes it as a science fiction war and peace. So this was this book, which was, you know, meant to be the, the culmination of his Thousand Worlds uh, series or universe, was meant to be his magnum opus. But three chapters in, he just had this a vision of uh, uh, children finding direwolves in the snow. And that basically he just followed that vision and started writing and eventually came up with this, this short story, um, which would eventually become the first chapter of a song of ice and fire. So he put Avalon in a drawer and just started <laughs> following the a song of ice and fire uh, story. And eventually that became what it is today. And Avalon, I guess is still sitting in that drawer. Well, it makes you wonder that, that if he had continued in that, with the Avalon, book or maybe even a series if he would have kind of dealt with the same themes and stuff and perfected them more in there instead of ice and fire like i wonder if that's what it would have resulted in possibly he gives a bit of a he sketches a bit of an outline in quartet of what it was meant to be about Mm -hmm. i think he describes it as having i mean it's set on the the planet of avalon which is kind of a civilization in the thousand worlds it's like a center of learning it has the center of human knowledge on it so it's a big um university and it's set from the point of view of like three different characters from three different worlds in the galaxy and their relationship to each other but that's basically all he all he says um so who knows what else was going to happen avalon itself it, it, it is like as you said like the center of knowledge and it never really i don't think it ever lost space flight or like it had it maybe it didn't contact other places it was it kept the knowledge it helped reestablish it or different places so it, and it's always referred to all the time as being like this incredible place. So it would have been nice to see it. it would, would, you'd think it would have an influence on the rest of the world. Like it would, that's what the storyline would be dealing with, whatever it went yeah. in, so. Well, yeah, it, it is. Martin describes it as a very important store, uh, planet in the Thousand Worlds series. I don't think we ever actually go there in the main, in any of the short stories, except for maybe, I think at the beginning of Night Flyers, that's where they um, set mm-hmm. sail from. That's where the characters set sail from. But it's always regarded as very important, like Dying of the Light. The characters used to live on Avalon and they refer to it a lot. 
Um, and it's kind of like, yeah, it's kind of like the library of humanity, like all everything that was lost during the interregnum, during the collapse of human civilization, the Avalonians kind of try and preserve and, and sort of regather from all the sort of uh, ruined civilizations of the galaxy. Okay, that's uh, wild cards <laughs> is an interesting <laughs> one. I, I never really got into wild cards because here George, is, George mostly does the editing. I think he's done, maybe done some writing as well. Um, but uh, it's just it was so out of my – well, here's the way I view it. I, I'm, when I'm reading George, I want to read George. Now, if he's with one other person, two other persons, you get part George. But then you just like, dilute it. Like this is no longer – I don't want to consider this – in the George area of work, it's just just some work. You may enjoy, you may not, but it's not what I'm looking for. So that's why I never I, got into it. I always feel sorry for Wildcards because I feel <laughs> like it's become the antagonist of the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom because its its main sin being that it's not A Song of Ice and Fire, and any yeah. any work that uh, Martin dedicates to it is taken away from the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. Um, I haven't read any of the books. I, a couple of the um, short stories that George wrote were included in his Dream Songs collection. Mm-hmm. So I read those, and they were quite enjoyable. It's it's basically like a superhero-themed um, series where I think an asteroid sort of lands on Earth or flies over Earth and it releases radiation and it produces all of these mutations in the human population. Um, and some humans become mutants, some sort of develop superpowers. So it's meant to be sort of, and I think that occurs in the 1950s or something, and it's kind of like an alternate history version, like what if superheroes existed in the real world and had an influence on historical events. So it's, it's definitely an interesting idea for a, a series, and I enjoyed the the stories that martin wrote um and i think i kind of am interested in reading it just to see how it compares to like the superhero culture of today like marvel and dc Mm -hmm. Uh, it kind of interesting to see how how um novelists would sort of take that idea and and write it as a in a sort of novel form rather than a graphic graphic novel form um but yeah, sadly, it's not a song of ice and fire. So <laughs> I think George <laughs> wrote some of the characters in it. I think the turtle or something like he really. Uh, in fact, the the world may have, if, if I'm remembering correctly, kind of came up about from George and a bunch of his friends. Maybe played it like a role playing game or kind of like this kind of gaming world or something. It was kind of, that kind of collaborative process that that generated. Yeah, and ran with it basically. Yeah, yeah, which is a, which is really cool. Like I think it was yeah developed. Like he had a role in almost like an, uh, the producer of a TV show or something. Like mm-hmm. he formulated the the overall outline of what the story would be, and then they each kind of took different characters to write about. You're right that it was the it was the scapegoat for a long time before all the other things that George like before there was like the HBO series. This was the scapegoat. I was like, oh, he's working on Wild Cards before, <laughs> but but like that's something that I mean people like to do. It's not. It's not accurate. Like you have to get to the point. Like if George wasn't doing this, he'd just be watching TV. Like if George is not going to do writing, he's not going to do it. It's not that other things are taking his time. He's either hmm. not going to write or he's going to write. Like he has a mental block or he, he, he only can write for a certain amount of hours. So if the, if that's the way you view it, it's almost like you prefer he at least write something else instead of just you know playing like a some computer game or something. I think he, there was some game he said he played and then he said I'm not going to do this. He doesn't have time <laughs> to do this yeah, kind of yeah. RPG game. So it, it, that's the way of view. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's editing is a completely different process to writing. Mm-hmm. So it's not like because he's editing, he, he's writing less. They're two, they're two different activities. Um, and yeah, 
I, I don't know. It's it's hard to speculate. I feel like half the time <laughs> the fandom is just speculating on on when the next uh, yeah. uh, well, when we, we had the this next discussion. Fire is coming out. But uh, well, and, and that, not necessarily on the timeline, but the the whole issue of like, well, should what if George just gave up on writing the series? Like, they, I mean, there, there are writers that just cannot finish their work. Like, they just get to the point that they cannot. They, it's like a roadblock, and they move. And, and and if you look at George's history of writing. It almost seems like he may have done that with certain works. Like he did something where he could have done more there, but he just moved on. And this is the first time where he's been locked into uh, a series and he can't really leave because of his commitments. Before he could always just move on to some other story, right? He yeah. To do a sequel. Yeah, and he he talks about that in Dream Songs, in fact, because Dream Song is a collection of his works, but it also includes kind of biographical information written by George himself, where he sort mm-hmm. of introduces each story. And yeah, he talks about various um, series that he started but then abandoned. Like there was the the Meat House Man was originally part of a trilogy of the called the Corpse Trilogy mm-hmm. that he was going to try and turn into a book. Um, and there was a few other things like that, black and white and red all over. He he abandoned Avalon. He abandoned. So there have been projects that he started and just didn't quite sort of light light a fire in him. But there was kind of no expectation. So he just it didn't matter that he abandoned him. Whereas he's put so much more into this series and it's uh, got so much so much more expectation that it's he's kind of trapped between a rock and a hard place. But who knows? Again, we're speculating on his psychology, but we really have no idea what's going on. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have no idea of his psychology, but he, we have the result of like, there's no book for 10 years, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, like, yeah. whatever the cause is, 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 it's not coming out. Like, we don't yeah. know the exact result. We only have those objective facts. And, it, and what makes it interesting when you read all these previous works, it's almost like the way I, the, the point that I got to, because everyone gets to the different place of what they expect with Ice and Fire. I got to the point that, like, if George said, I'm, I'm finished with it, then, okay, you're finished with it. You can't do it. That's up to you. That's your life. You want to move on to something else, I'll take it because I enjoy reading everything you write. Like, I don't have to see the end of this. But that's just my own conclusion. That, uh, I'm sure many people are still very invested in the series and want an ending from George, and they would be, like, utterly disappointed. But I, I would not be. I'd say, okay, I, I, I've enjoyed reading these books and ready for the next whatever thing you want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, it's a shame because he he is past retirement age. He probably wants to retire, but he's uh, you know he's put so much into it. I, I'm sure he wants to finish it. I'm sure he, he certainly wants to finish it because yeah, it's magnum opus. He wants it to be good. He he, he could just throw it out like he, mm. it would be good. Like he I mean, he could just produce something, but for whatever reason, but we don't know what it is. The only facts we have is there's no book for ten years, right? So mm. like that's the objective fact. Yeah. <laughs> But what we can do is control what our reaction or what how we view that, and I reached the Zen state for the, for that. <laughs> he doesn't want he wants to move on. Okay, he can move on if he wants to. That's just I support that. Right. Perhaps that's part of his plan to help us achieve <laughs> enlightenment, to accept the long night, to accept the winter winter, and only when we've lost all hope will he give it to us. Yeah, that's right. That that was the message all along. It make, it makes it makes you put other things in perspective in terms of time, I guess. Like you're like, oh, this is not so so long to wait for this thing. <laughs> for yeah. Something else, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And and again, I, I said it at the start of the episode. Like part of discovering his other works was that long wait and and wanting more. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there is heaps more, which is which is kind of the good news. There is actually heaps more. I would highly recommend people get Dream Songs, um, which is a great collection uh, of of mm-hmm. his work. Um, definitely get that. There's a lot of, well, a lot of what you love about Song of Ice and Fire is in those, is in that, is in that collection. 
So if you're if you're sick of waiting, go get that. Not only not yeah, not only is it a good start introduction for a lot of these more established works, it, it even has like some of his like really old works, like when he was in like, university or like maybe even younger. I remember right, it has like kind of stories of like really old stuff that he kind of was was working on. So yeah, the, the dream sounds good. There. There's um, a superhero story that he wrote as a teenager, I think, called Only Kids Are Afraid of the Dark. And then there's another one that I think he wrote for university, which is kind of like a historical short story mm-hmm. about a siege in um, in Russia, was it? I wonder what, what maybe- grade he got for that. Like, what if he got like a bad grade? And then the prof's like, you're never going to do well. <laughs> You'll never amount to anything. <laughs> or maybe he got an A. Maybe he got an A on it. Who knows? Like, I wonder what that yeah. prof. Uh, thinks like well, like, would it be funny if they see this? Like, <laughs> what he turn out to be later on, right? Like his writing ability, but uh, yeah, hmm. yeah. Anyway, this is the furniture rule that you, that you mentioned earlier. I called it the furniture quote. They talking about just like different uh, types of stories, just use different materials, but it's really just getting the same kind of thing, right? The same end point. So yeah, and it's something that um, he describes. The genre, like any, yeah, he very, as we said before, he very easily slips between those two things. Like, there's a lot of horror in A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, he's able to slip between those moods pretty, pretty seamlessly. Mm-hmm. But in fact, there, even some of his works are sort of dramatized that tension between science fiction and fantasy. Like, I think Bitter Blooms can be read, mm-hmm. it's it sort of, it, it begins seemingly as a fantasy work. Um, but, but the character, is sort of premises they're running through a uh, a forest being hunted by um vampires or something in the in the dead of winter and then they come across a spaceship um so it's showing the kind of uh the two sides of the coin of fantasy and science mm-hmm. fiction you know science is fantasy by another name that kind of thing magic is just things we don't understand and and also other works kind of show argue for the importance of having this sense of fantasy and not trying to explain everything like mm-hmm. uh what was, the, what was the one morning uh, comes with, misfall and uh, yeah. yeah with morning yeah. comes misfall which is set on this planet um which which is supposedly haunted by these uh spirits called wraiths and covered in this mist that creates this really beautiful haunting atmosphere and then a scientific expedition comes and tries to determine are there really monsters out there or is it just superstition and so it's showing that um Science can explain things, but maybe we don't want everything explained. Maybe there's things about the human spirit that needs a sense of mystery and a sense of wonder to give it meaning. Maybe science isn't the be-all and end-all. There are other things we need. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, I guess the next thing we have, you want to mention just the uh, Thousand Worlds wiki? Oh, yeah. So this was uh, (laughs) partially a product of the... uh, the COVID lockdown and having a lot of time on my hands, but also um, doing the different reviews of the different um, uh, Martin short stories on the Bastards of Kingsgrave podcast. Um, and I found myself getting very confused while reading some of these stories. Like I couldn't keep track of the of the planets and the history. So I decided to create a wiki mm. of uh, Martin's Thousand Worlds universe. Um, so it's uh it's a fandom wiki, so the the website is grrm-thousand-worlds.fandom.com, and um, I've got a list of all the works uh, that are considered part of the Thousand World universe. So all the short stories, as well as Dying of the Light and Tough Voyaging, 
um, and uh, each each work has an article on it, which includes a plot summary, uh, a list of sort of themes, um, uh, author's notes if they are included in dream songs, publication history, adaptations. Um, and connections to other Thousand World books. Um, and there's also a list of the different planets and worlds in the Thousand World universe, um, a sort of history timeline, if you want to get around that, um, and a list of different species that you encounter in the series. So, um, I mean, the, the works are, you know, you can read these works on their own. You don't have to have an understanding of the universe. They work as self-contained stories. But I think you can get a new layer of enjoyment out of it if you sort of get a sense of how the stories are connected, the sort of narrative connections, the thematic connections between these sort of stories, I think is a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I really enjoyed going just, well, we're still going through it. We covered most of them, but we're, we're moving our way through Tough Voyaging, hopefully next mm-hmm. but uh and, and so like as you said many of the works that we covered are in this thousand worlds and, and some are not they're just other independent works of science fiction or fantasy or or horror one that we didn't actually talk about but i think it was the first one we the first one for our bastard king grave uh kind of review series was unsound variations where mm-hmm. uh george uh, taps into his chess history because george was a chess player and he even judged chess tournaments and stuff and uh, it's a really interesting chess story. Like I really enjoy that. It's one of the better short stories, actually, on sound variations. So there's just so many different types of works that he's done. Like it's just worth it if you, especially when if, if you're stuck here waiting for the next book. Well, why better? Like what's better opportunity to go look at his George's earlier works and enjoy that. Do Do you have a favorite couple of short stories by Martin? I mean, yeah, probably. I mean, in terms of like. The top rated one, like the ones that would get the highest rating, I think Unsound Variations is one of them. Like, especially because it's standalone. If you just go read it and deal mm-hmm. with the issues there, and it's interesting. So Unsound Variations for sure, and then more in the A Thousand Worlds. Then Song for Lie is very good. Mm-hmm. Sand Kings is very good. Um, is it in the House of the Worm that we covered yeah. recently? I, I I only read that recently. I really enjoyed that as well. That was really good. And um, Second kind of loneliness as well. It's pretty good. If I could, George conveyed in a good way that whole concept of loneliness, and it, it, you can certain you can certainly see that if you go too far in that route and don't find some kind of connection or, or way out of it, you can get into very extreme situations and have psychological problems and, and whatnot. But many people yeah. have experienced the an arc of that, a taste of part of that, right? Of that kind of loneliness yeah. at some point in their life. Yeah, that that's it. That's a really good one, a second kind of loneliness. I think Martin describes it as like he basically opened a wound to, to tell that story because – and you can really feel it. There's something really intimately painful about that story. And I like I sort of have felt a lot of similar feelings as that story conveys. So, it's almost like you recoil from that story because it, there's something painfully truthful about it. I think some of my favorites, uh, Portraits of His Children is a really mm. good one. Um, yes. That's – that's one of his later short stories, and by later I mean sort of late eighties. Um, and he talks a lot. It's it's really about the sort of what it means to be a writer, the writing process, um, the characters you create, um, and the sort of the tension between the, the 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 fantasy world that you create and the real world that it that it stems from. Um, and uh, I mentioned Sand Kings um, and Meat House Man. Uh, I'm, I'm a big horror fan, and they're two really good horror horror stories. Mm. Um, and finally, The Stone City, which we reviewed last year, 
which is um, a very surreal work. Um, it's probably the f- uh, as far away from like human affairs that Martin goes because he it's about a character that basically goes into alien space and is interacting with all these alien creatures and and gets sort of marooned on this alien planet. But I felt I I don't know exactly I can't put my finger exactly why I love that story so much, but it just uh, it has such a deep yearning and a sense of wonder and a sense of like existential angst about the insignificance of human beings in the in the cosmos and this search for you know some kind of conclusion that you never quite feel. So um, I, I really love that one as well. Portraits of his children, as you said, is is kind of meta in the sense that George himself is kind of reflecting on his own writing and what it takes to, to where he drew upon it sometimes like inspirations and maybe a writer might go too far or how a writer yeah. his own works. So, I mean, going back to second kind of loneliness and how he describes, you know, opening up a wound to write that story. Sometimes you put too much of yourself mm-hmm. as a danger of putting too well, much might, of yourself. That might've been uh, even Meat House Man. I think he, that he, I, 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 he probably opened up multiple wounds for the different stories. I think Meat House Man is the most extreme and maybe yeah. what it would open the wound was, but you can see the path from second kind of loneliness to meet house man. You can see how that type of person in that type of situation, like if they keep mm. on that path, well, even second kind of loneliness itself, we won't go to the ending, but it's not positive. Portraits of your children feels uh, almost biographical in the sense that it's showing the effect that your, the creative process can have on like family members. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that you put so much of yourself into your work in some sense means you're depriving yourself of, of your loved ones. You're depriving yourself of the real world or you're taking the experiences of loved ones and, and almost stealing it for your work. And there's something mm-hmm. almost like, there's almost like a betrayal in that, um, which I thought was really well dramatized in that, in that story. It also has a very strong sense of dread too, during the story itself. Like he, not only does he deal with those philosophical issues, the story itself is exciting. You're like, Oh, this next thing is going to happen. Right. So yeah, <laughs> It's just, uh, I don't know if we, were you with us when we reviewed Remembering Melody? That's another kind of a horror one that's that's pretty well. And again, he drew upon no, classic No, I, I, yeah. I didn't view it, but I, I've read it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, so here we have uh, what we normally would do at this point in the live convention is take questions or comments. But since this is online, what we decided is if you have any questions or comments on these issues, like just send us a tweet, a podcast of Ice and Fire or VOK, VOK podcast, actually, right? at VOK Podcast, right? Yeah. yeah. VOK Podcast is the Twitter handle. APOIF um, is the Twitter handle for Podcast of Ice and Fire. Um, but you can also just leave comments on the on the video, on the YouTube video when it's released um, mm-hmm. during the con. And so so when the con, so unfortunately, we, because it's a virtual con, we can't um, answer questions in person, which we'd love to do. Um, but if you just post the questions while the con's happening, we'll just check YouTube or tw- we'll check Twitter and we can um, we can answer you there if that's cool. Yeah, and if you want to check out the the reviews that we've been doing, we have them in audio format at Bastards of King's Grave. Like if you want to listen on your podcast player. Or if you prefer it on YouTube, most of them have been released on the Vassals of Kingsgrave YouTube as well. So that that's another medium you can can enjoy them at. Absolutely. Well, good. Thanks, uh, Duncan. As always, I enjoyed covering these other works with you as well as we do <laughs> on those various yeah, podcasts. Yeah, no. Thanks, Amin. Yeah. It's fun, fun to be back at Ice and Fire Con again. Yeah, and I hope everyone is enjoying the online convention. Looking forward, hopefully, to get it back in person the, the year after and uh, get past this pandemic.
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, thanks, Duncan. All right, thanks, Amin. See ya. Cheers. See y'all. Hey, you haven't watched My Hero Academia, have you? I don't think so, right? Have you, have you no, I haven't. Yeah. I don't really watch much anime, but I see yeah. that I work at a library and the manga I see on the shelves is very popular. Well, that's what we talked about. You should you should listen to uh, BOK's latest anime manga corner because we have Zach on there who's also kind of like, like he's a little bit interested but doesn't really read it. But yeah, we have him on and we kind of talk about where you can read this stuff or see it. And you're right. It, it, I say in the library you can actually get almost anything. Yeah, yeah. Now. But like, like our manga section is humongous. So like, <laughs> the ma- manga, like the manga series, they take up so much shelf space. <laughs> well, manga so really fits what I do now because uh, I just find, sadly, I don't have time to read books as much as as I used to. Like, I used to really be a voracious reader, and now, like, I mean, I read things for work, but do you mean for for yourself? No, like, mm. I don't. I don't have the time to do that usually. But manga, I do because it's you know it's just way faster to get through. It's part image, part text, just like a. Yeah, it's yeah. It's a perfect form and medium. Like, I, it's not just like I don't want to just watch stuff, but this one has the text as well, but it has emotion. Like, I don't know, it's, it's the right story in manga format. I really enjoy. I'm not saying to check out My Hero Academia. I just I, I said, what's funny? I didn't mention it in the re- report, but like, Wild Cards kind of like reminds me of My Hero Academia. It's the same kind of world stuff, like that kind of world. It's, it's oh, really? not unique to Wild Cards, but like, yeah, it, Wild Cards is pretty early in that kind of like, you know, there's a mutation, some good people, some bad people. Of course, there'd be some that would be good and some that would be mm. bad, right? If they had superpowers. So it's yeah. like, it, it, it's actually related to my hero academia. I didn't mention it, but it's just funny. Well, I, I find that in some ways more interesting than like the sort of Marvel or DC universe where superheroes are all basically good guys or not mm. just like, I don't know, there's. There's something like really um, boring about a lot of superheroes, yes. whereas like the, the sort of the the wild card, the idea of just like superheroes being regular people with all the foibles and and anxieties and neuroses and problems of a human, but with these extra added abilities, mm-hmm. I find like more realistic and more interesting. Um, I'm trying to think, like I guess sort of um, what was that Alan Moore one, um, Watchmen that kind of does a similar thing there um yeah so i should maybe check it out i should check I might it out even release the i might eventually just what we just recorded today and mm. uh, and release it on bok because because i put panel stuff on here before so yeah yeah that's fine that at some yeah. point yeah after after it's been released on, oh for sure yeah like uh, i don't have the time to do it anytime soon anyways <laughs> yeah yeah when, when is the con is it in is it in a couple of weeks is it it may be in a couple of weeks. If Tara wants it so quickly, then yeah, it probably yeah. is in, in a couple of weeks, right? She wants oh, the good. video by the end of the week, I think. It's a couple, next couple of days, so. 
I yep. feel sorry for them because like they they wanted to do it last year and it just kept getting delayed and now yeah it's like, it just was not feasible especially when a smaller yeah. convention where everyone's closer to each other and the funny thing with Comic Con is like you go there every year and you're like oh this is such an expense I don't want to come here again and then it's like oh a few months later I want to go to Comic Con <laughs> I know I know you you really appreciate things once you can't have them <laughs> yeah well I think having the, the couple of year break because because of, of this will be like okay I want to go to one more of these and then then take another break like I want to. Going, uh, there's going to be online again for Comic Con this year. I'm trying to, to do panels for it. They're very picky. Like mm-hmm. I've only ever just got the Ice and Fire panel on the booth, but you never know. I might. I would like the Orville. Have you watched the Orville? Can you do or, like an? Is there many anime panels? At I guess there are, but they're very specific. Like okay, they're, they're one of two things: either the actual the actual actors and the actual people that run it, or there's some kind of like you know industry roundtable for general stuff or some kind of cross thing. It's not one subject. You would do mm-hmm. like all super superheroes in a manga or anime or something like that. Like I, I don't think we just would get anything there the way we are right now. But we're I'm trying for the Orville fan panel because mm-hmm. I like the Orville. Have you have you watched the Orville at all? No, no, I've I've heard it's a really good it's really good Star Trek. It's, it's the proper Star Trek. Like it's, it's yeah. <laughs> do you get big? Do you get good crowds for the podcast of Ice and Fire panel at Comic Con? We do. But what's interesting is they they always in that uh, library. For some reason, they do not put us in the main convention hall. I think it because. It's basically the library, the, the San Diego Library, which is actually world class. Like it's beautiful. It's very good architecture, very good place. They we actually have like the auditorium where we run it, but yeah. they kind of like expand it to have podcast types content, and then they just put it there. And so we kind of fall under the podcast arc, even though I'm sure like there there are rooms in the convention center we could go there and do mm-hmm. it, but they put us there. But so given the fact that people have to walk like 15, 20 minutes away to get mm-hmm. to it, we still have like a hundred people plus. Oh, year. that's great. That that's more that's than awesome. a lot of panels in, in, in the convention. There's rooms of like 40, 50 that do not fill up for panels. Mm-hmm. So they could, if they had put us while like you know Game of Thrones is running in the convention mm-hmm. center, we could have had hundreds and hundreds. I think because because many people do not want to walk twenty minutes in the heat, right, to go to some yeah. library. If, if they were already at the convention center, they'll, they'll plop right in there. So um, that is a little bit odd, but whatever. I'll take it. I don't care. I don't care. I'm not gonna be like, oh, they put us in the library. I, I, I'll take it. Like it's it's, yeah. it's still good. It's a good. Situation totally. with, like we have a good interaction we have the you know the audio every every release right like it's a it's a good experience like i'll, I'll take yeah. it even to the library <laughs> absolutely comic-con's like the you holy go, grail you have to go there sometime that's as you do for your next uh, trip i'd love to yeah i um yeah hopefully one day i can get back to america because i only right. visited I, I visited like new york and la and a few states but i'd love to yeah see more of the middle of the country and see louisiana and mexico and stuff well, here's the thing. If I do get the panel, any panel, really, we, we have a lot of extra tickets. Because, you know, the half of Comic-Con is it's like impossible to get a badge, right? Mm, um, yeah. Not necessarily free ones. Like, there's some free ones, but usually that goes to the person who brings their personal other. But we do have a set of, like, just tickets. Basically, like, it's like you've won the lottery. for the, like, you, you can buy your badge. Like, you, yep. know, you have to win a lottery. So, so you wouldn't have to worry about, like, oh, am I going to get a ticket? No, you have, you have to pay whatever it is for a ticket. But it's a full ticket, including preview night. So you get four, the four days plus the preview night. So if you stay in contact and we get it for 2022, who knows? Like then, then you potentially. I, I don't think I've ever used up the full amount of those pay tickets. Like I've, I've used up for people like John. You met Igan John, mm-hmm. right? Yep. at this. He, yeah, he yeah. goes there every year with his family oh, cool. and stuff, and he, he he used a few of those pay tickets. But uh, you could, yep. like, if you were doing a trip in 2022, you could potentially go to Comic Con yeah. and then go to the rest or wherever else you wanted to go. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. yeah, that'd be yeah. good. Okay, take care. All right, thanks, Amin. Have a good one. Bye.